Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Sue Windybank and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. This month, with all of the IQ team working from home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're bringing you a bite-sized episode. When a disease is this contagious, even cautious medical professionals are at serious risk. The virus spreads through contact with bodily fluids and is fatal in up to 90% of cases. This is the deadliest outbreak of Ebola on record. More than 1,200 people have been infected in Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia and around 670 of them have died. Three-month-old Anna Beatrice coos like any normal baby. But Anna was born with microcephaly an extremely small head due to abnormal brain development, a devastating neurological condition that doctors suspect is linked to a Zika virus infection during pregnancy. A city of 11 million, but it doesn't look like it. Closed off from the outside world, Wuhan is in lockdown. If the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in Europe is in Lombardy province in northern Italy, then the absolute centre of this epidemic is here in the town of Bergamo. More people have died here than anywhere else, and they still are every day. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades, and this country is not alone. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Cholera, Ebola, influenza, MERS, SARS, smallpox, yellow fever, Zika, and of course, novel coronavirus. These are just some of the pandemic epidemic diseases listed on the World Health Organization's website. And until a few months ago, many of us, particularly in the West, had remained comfortably unaffected by these terrible diseases. Yet today, it seems dreadfully routine to consume daily infection rates and sobering death tolls. And while the exact figures are unclear, men seem to be dying at a far higher rate. And so it might be strange to focus on women at a time like this. But in this episode of LSEIQ, I talked to Dr. Claire Wenham, Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at LSE. We spoke via Zoom and I asked her, what does gender have to do with pandemics? Claire, you're an expert in global health policy, security and infectious diseases. You've done research on the 2015 Zika outbreak and through the COVID-19 pandemic, you found yourself very much in the eye of the storm, policy-wise, media-wise. Can you tell us what this experience has been like for you as an academic? Yeah, I can. The first thing I think that's really interesting about this is that normally when I do research on outbreak events, they're, they're happening somewhere else, right? They're happening in Brazil or in Sierra Leone or in another part of the world. And Whilst I can be sympathetic to the experiences of those who are at risk and those who are infected, to actually experience it myself has been something really uh, interesting from my own research to actually understand the really human emotions, uh, you know, myself rather than just listening to other people's experiences of it. It's also made me realize the impact of government decision making, the impact of the World Health Organization decision making. How does that trickle down onto the everyday? And being able to personalize that has been really um, informative for me as a researcher. 
I think it's also interesting that this is now getting um, coverage and getting uh, concern in the media. Certainly the areas that I work on, which aren't the hard science, it's not the epidemiological discussions, it's about the impact on the everyday, it's about the impact on people's lives, it's about understanding the politics within outbreaks isn't something that normally gets uh, media coverage, doesn't normally get the policy attention. And the fact that it is in this outbreak gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope for the role of social sciences in global health emergencies, in global health security, in global health more generally. I think people are realizing that we don't just need to know who's being infected. We don't just need to know how to develop a vaccine. Whilst those are vital, we also need to know how this how this matters in societies and how this matters in terms of people's behaviours and people's decision making. And practically, how have you found it juggling requests from, for example, the media and with thinking about your work at the same time? Um, so that's been a challenge. Uh, I also have two small children at home uh, and my husband and I are juggling, uh, like a lot of families, I'm sure at the moment, um, you know, paid work and non-paid work and uh, everything else on top of it. Um, I I see myself as, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think I am actively trying to contribute to debates, but I also see myself as having a role in that I have got some experience in this. And if I can help uh, explain that to other people in the world through media outlets, through my writing, then I'm happy to. Um, but I'm also very aware that it can take up a lot of time. And when time is at a premium right now, uh, I can't always do it. One of the things, particularly earlier in this outbreak, that was really noticeable was the, the um, epidemic of false, uh, fake news and false information. And uh, I didn't want to contribute to that. I wanted to make sure that I was answering questions I'm comfortable to answer and not, uh, you know, my interpretation of mathematical modelling or my interpretation of epidemiology because that's not my role. And if I had a, a voice in the public space, I didn't want to be confusing that message. Now, you have a particular interest in gender. What does gender have to do with an epidemic or a pandemic? So it has lots of things to do with it. I mean, I think people, um, particularly in this outbreak, might be thinking, oh, well, more men are dying, so why are we talking about women? But what we've seen from previous outbreaks is that women are, are differently and, and disproportionately affected, and not just in terms of being infected, uh, so with the virus or the disease, but on the, the knock-on socioeconomic effects disproportionately fall on women. So, um, you know, we can see this in lots of ways. First of all, we know that the global health workforce is 70% women. So we know that more women than men are on the front lines giving care to those who are infected. That then puts them at a disproportional risk of being infected themselves. So, you know, in this outbreak of coronavirus, right, we, we are seeing spikes of incidents amongst female healthcare workers. The problem is that we aren't seeing consistent sex segregated data being published by governments or by the World Health Organization. So we don't know that conclusively. So people can talk about men dying and absolutely that's awful. And I'm not trying to suggest that that's not and I'm not trying to minimize that. But we also need to think about, well, who else is being infected and how does that affect their own um, family life, economic security, whether they can go to work and, and the knock on effects. There are then um, issues related to the distortion of health systems, which disproportionately affect women. 
So we know, for example, from the Ebola outbreak, that when, um, when health systems become overwhelmed by a crisis, all the resources and all the um, activity gets diverted to respond to that crisis, which means that anything which is deemed as non-essential gets left by the wayside. Now, one of the things that we've seen be left by the wayside in Nivola and in Zika has been um, access to sex reproductive health, access to maternity services. And that, can, that obviously affects women more than men. Um, but it's, we've seen, for example, um, increased rates of teen pregnancies during times of crisis if people aren't able to access contraceptions. Um, more alarmingly, um, a colleague from LSE, Laura Sochas, led a piece of work which looked at the excess maternal mortality during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And her research found that um, the, the same amount of women died of maternal complications from not being able to seek uh, care and maternal care than died of Ebola in the same time period. And so this really makes us consider kind of why, what we're talking about when we talk about crisis and why is it that we're prioritizing, um, you know, Ebola victims or coronavirus victims over every other healthcare need. We also know that there's an increase of um, domestic violence during um, lockdown periods. We're seeing it already being reported in the news across the world. We know that domestic violence happens in the home. So what happens when you shut everyone in their homes and maybe make people have economic insecurity and fear about being infected and worrying about their families. It's not unsurprising that that increases. And we also know that um, women tend to suffer the economic consequences of outbreaks more, more harshly and for longer than men. So we know that um, uh, women tend to be in less well-paid jobs. They tend to be in less secure jobs. They tend to be working part-time or flexible hours. Uh, and that, that multiplies when we then look at those countries uh, where, where significant populations work in the informal economy. And so these are the first jobs that will either be furloughed if you're in a formal employment or just be lost um, in, in other parts of the world. And so we know then that that means women are going to be disproportionately affected, not having that economic security to be able to feed themselves, feed their families. We also know from research from Ebola that that after the outbreak, men returned to employment sooner than women. So this has longer term impacts on women's economic empowerment, women's economic security. And a lot of this is linked to the fact that um, women are performing a lot more of the domestic work, domestic care uh, during lockdown periods. So when they're not working, they're the ones who are looking after the children. That means that even if they're supposed to be working at home, they can't because they're also doing the homeschooling. They're also doing the, the cooking and the washing and everything else that goes on in a household. And so when the crisis then um, is over or starts to, to dwindle, they're still doing all those things, which means they can't go back to work. So there's a lot of ways where we need to think about women in outbreaks. Uh, and I think it's really important that we have these discussions and that policymakers start thinking about these longer term socioeconomic impacts on women. Now, you touched on it there. Um, you did research on Zika. Um, what were you looking at there and what did you find? So in the Zika outbreak, what we were really interested in was looking at the intersection between reproductive rights and access to sexual reproductive health services and the uh, Zika crisis. 
what was interesting about the Zika outbreak was that the manifestation of the disease um, came in the form of babies being born with congenital Zika syndrome and uh, microcephaly, so being born with small heads. And so at the global level, there was a lot of discussion around, oh, should women be uh, continuing with their pregnancies? Should we be trying to delay or limit women getting pregnant during the crisis so that we don't have this epidemic of children with physical uh, needs. But where the epicenter was in Brazil uh, and across Latin America, um, it's not always easy or indeed legal to access sexual reproductive health services. So even though they, the government might say that there is free contraception available to everyone, physically, how do women get that? It might not be available in every location. There are gendered norms around um, control of, of sex and when you have sex, which might impact whether contraception is used. And the big one we were looking at was around the legislation of abortion. And we wanted to know whether the Zika crisis led to any change in uh, abortion legislation. And we looked at this in three different countries which have very different uh, legislative frameworks for abortion ranging from El Salvador, where abortion is criminalized and you can end up in jail for having uh, sought an abortion, to Colombia, where it's completely legal uh, for, for women to get an abortion, and Brazil, uh, where it is um, illegal apart from in the cases of incest, rape, or um, ancestry when a baby's born without a brain. And our researchers basically found that actually the crisis didn't change any of this. Uh, interestingly, the Supreme Court in Brazil did have a petition against it uh, to try and um, uh, legalize or depenalize uh, abortion in some ways. But that Supreme Court ruling has yet to come back yet. So we aren't, we aren't um, able to think about that. And even if it did, it's now two or three years after the crisis. Uh, whilst there is still Zika circulating, is it going to be uh, directly uh, helping those who feel at risk of, of Zika? Now, one, you know, one part of me says it doesn't matter. Women need abortion for many reasons and they should be able to access, access that when they need to. But we're interested in, in the fact that um, sexual reproductive health services are rarely thought about in health emergencies. And we need to start looking at how they have been considered in health emergencies. In a recent BMJ blog, you wrote that the coronavirus might actually be, in the end, a watershed moment for women's emancipation. What did you mean by that? So I, I just think that whilst we research the gendered implications of uh, outbreaks and the gendered vulnerabilities to the longer term effects of outbreaks, it can be quite depressing. And it can be a lot of like, oh, women aren't, when women are going to suffer here, here and here, and we can, can predict and unfortunately then evidence where those things have happened. But I think it's also important to recognize that, that there are potential opportunities in, in every outbreak. And um, I think that in this outbreak, the fact that most of the world is currently on lockdown and most people are trying to juggle multiple responsibilities of work and looking after children and looking after their house or whatever they're doing, might provide a window into people's lives that employers and the government don't normally see. So employers, you know, most traditional employers, certainly in the UK, expect you to, you know, be at work from nine to five or whatever your hours are, and you are an employee, and they don't care about your, your personal life. 
we were wondering whether actually the fact that now through Zoom, everyone can see into your house and they can see your dirty dishes and they can see your kids running into your screen and shouting at you. And they can see that your internet cuts out because you know, three of you in a household are all trying to get online at the same time. And maybe this gives an opportunity for employers to see that actually people have got a lot more going on and they're not just workers and people might appreciate more flexible working hours or flexible working regimes or um, just more understanding of the competing priorities. And particularly, I think this is important for um, employers of men because I think a lot of employers of women are used to requests for flexible working and requests for part-time working. But I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe uh, you know, more male-dominated industries uh, might see that this is an issue for men and, you know, we're not in the 1950s and you know, men don't have wives at home who do all their laundry and cooking and they share parental responsibility for their children and that actually we should be giving men and women the same flexibility in their, in their work patterns. You know, we know that crisis is a time for change. We saw, for example, at the end of World War One, we saw, um, you know, a, a big move towards uh, emancipation of women and uh, the suffragette movement and um, access to votes for women. And so why can't this crisis be a opportunity for women and men to have more equality in the workplace and for employers to recognise that, that, um, that, that people have lives going on? Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Natalie Abbott, James Ratti, and me, Sue Windybank. Want to explore the issue of gender and pandemics in more depth? This episode was based in part on the following work and research. COVID-19, the gendered impacts of the outbreak by Claire Wenham, Julia Smith and Rosemary Morgan, on behalf of the Gender and COVID-19 Working Group, published in The Lancet, March 2020. Why It Must Be a Feminist Global Health Agenda by Sarah E. Davis, Professor Sophie Harmon, Professor Rashida Manju, Maria Tanyag and Claire Wenham, published in The Lancet, February 2019. COVID-19 is an opportunity for gender equality within the workplace and at home. Claire Wenham, Julia Smith, and Rosemary Morgan, published by the BMJ blog at blogs.bmj.com, April 2020. Securitizing Zika, The Case of Brazil, by Claire Wenham and Deborah B. L. Farias, published in the journal Security Dialogue, July 2019. Join us next time and stay safe in the meantime. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app and please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.